Today's episode is sponsored by Femex. We'll hear more about them later in the show. Hey everyone, this is your friend Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto, politics, law, and media, and everything in between. Thanks for joining. Let's dive in. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing crypto media company. Blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts, and I'm excited to be part of the network. Visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you won't be disappointed. Hey, everyone. It's Bully Esquire. Thanks for joining me. Uh, Today's guest is Hugh Naylor. I'm really excited. He's a journalist, an author, and is involved in the consulting world. And I figured as we approach the election, this will this will probably come out the day after the election, actually. But um, I was I wanted to bring Hugh on to discuss the current state of the U.S. media, how we got here, and where we go. So, Hugh, thanks for thanks for joining me today. Bully, it's great to be on. It's great to finally chat with you. I followed your Twitter work <clears throat> extensively, so it's been uh, it's been fun. Oh Lord. <laughs> Well, yeah, thanks. Uh, no, no, I appreciate you joining me. So, um, you know, as I alluded to just a second ago, you were a foreign affairs journalist overseas for several years. Is that right? I'm just, I, you know, it's, it's such an interesting profession. I'm curious how you got into it, how you ended up there and what your experience was. So maybe just give a little bit of, on your background and how you ended up in, in journalism and media. Yeah, for sure. Um, I had a very unorthodox experience, at least early on, that kind of, you know, eventually became sort of the norm for most foreign correspondents. But yes, I, I worked in the Middle East for 10 years as a journalist. Um, in fact, I have, I don't think I've ever reported inside the United States. I learned journalism abroad. Um, you know, I picked it up abroad randomly and I just kind of ran with it. Um, but I, you know, I wrote as a freelancer from pre-Civil War Syria for the New York Times. I was basically kind of kicked out of the country by Bashar al-Assad's government um, for an article that I wrote that they didn't like. It was <laughs> kind of weird. Um, but then I went on to report for a newspaper that was based in the United Arab Emirates called um, The National. And through, you know, their sort of system, I, you know, was standing in Tahrir Square when Hosni Mubarak was pushed out during the revolution. I, you know, I was, uh, when the rebels took uh, the city of Aleppo in 2012, I was right there. Um, two wars in Gaza. It was, it was a wild experience. And then eventually I became a, a correspondent for the Washington Post and I was based in Beirut covering Islamic State stuff and, um, you know, kind of uh, the unrest that transpired after the the Arab Spring. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's sort of like the, what happened, but my, you know, it's interesting. I, 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 I think most people, they still have this sort of idyllic view of what foreign correspondents do, who they are, you know, they work out of bureaus, you know, they have a driver, they're, you know, constantly flying around the world, you know, you know, going to rough spots and, you know, spending days on the story, et cetera. But, you know, it's interesting. I, I'm sort of writing a book about this. I have been off and on for a while here, but, you know, the, that notion of the foreign correspondent has changed dramatically. And, and I sort of lived 
that I, it is sometimes I joke that I was the world's first gig economy war correspondent. And, um, and so my experience of, 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 of going through journalism when the entire system has been upended, uh, it, it, you know, I think I, I encountered barriers and obstacles that were not present, present uh, when the older generations, the pre-internet generation of reporters uh, reported, uh, you know, say in the Middle East or war zones. But on the other hand, it sort of, you know, given the rise of the internet, presented lots of other opportunities. Um, so it's, it was a very bizarre experience. That was a very long-winded answer. But no, no, and I'm I'm going to sort of go blow by blow and kind of ask you some follow-ups there. So with um, with you getting into it, you you just sort of landed in it. You ended up overseas, and how how does it work? Like, how do you get a story? Is it just you have someone you're in contact with at a media organization and they email you and say, Hey, we'll give you like a thousand bucks if you write this story on Assad or I'm just curious, like the actual process and how you got embedded in that process, because it's so foreign to me and it's really interesting. And I think my listeners will find it interesting as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great question. Um, in terms of how I got to the middle East, you know, I was finishing graduate school I went to an international relations uh, graduate school in Washington, D.C., and it's called SICE. It's through Johns Hopkins. Um, and I was a very poor student. I was just not a standout at all. And, like, you know, all my friends were getting these great jobs at banks and, you know, government agencies. And I was like, oh, man, what am I going to do? So, like, two weeks before graduation, I took out a student loan, which I later learned this was, this was an unlawful use of Uncle Sam's, you know, student loan uh, <laughs> schemes. But uh, I took out a student loan and I bought a ticket to Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, this was in 2006. And, you know, at the time I'd been studying a lot about the Middle East and I was very interested in it. And I was like, why don't I just go and travel for like the summer and figure it out? So anyways, I bought the ticket and I ended up after graduation going to Beirut. And then, you know, I think my third day in Lebanon, the Israelis started bombing mm -hmm. Beirut in the South. And I ended up just started, you know, no media experience. I started blogging um, for the Washington Post randomly for, you know, pro bono, it was, it wasn't paid mm. much, but that experience, you know, it's being able to go abroad like that nowadays and just kind of work your way into the foreign reporting system. It's in some ways much easier to do that. Whereas in the past, when the old system of, of working through established media outlets, um, the, the pathway to being, becoming a foreign correspondent generally was very different. You know, you went, started up at a local paper or a regional paper, worked your way up through a, a national paper, you know, and then you went abroad. So anyways, that was very different, but yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, in terms of pitching stories and who sets the news agenda, you know, it's interesting. It's just, um, it depends. I think, you know, if you're a freelancer and you're living hand to mouth, like freelancers are, the bulk of like the foreign press corps we know it now. Like it's the, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. The, um, the, you know, we always talk about how the, uh, you know, American workforce has been sort of leveled by all these vast economic changes that have occurred over the last 40 years. Right. It's been sort of gigified or whatever, however you want to describe it. Sure. And in a, in a sense, that's sort of, there's a mirror reflection of that in the foreign press corps. Right. Um, 
And, you know, you do have the few, say, newspaper or TV correspondents who have like a real job with employment, you know, like uh, union access, um, company health care, uh, salary, et cetera. But there's so few and far between. And then below them, you know, the vast majority of reporters um, are some variation of, uh, you know, the equivalent to like an adjunct professor or like a benefits for Uber driver or something, right? Um, and anyways, you know, that new, that newish development, which has occurred over the last 15 years, um, which we can talk about how it's happened, you know, further along, why, why these jobs are no longer there. Uh, but the fact that there are more freelancers out there, the, you know, the monetary incentives for freelancers are different because you're living almost hand to mouth. And every day is a struggle to try and pitch editors via email and say New York or whatever online digital native outlet that no one reads. Um, and you're pitching them articles. And in your mind, you're thinking to yourself, what is the most monetizable article that I could you know, possibly pitch right now? Hmm. Um, what is the, what do I think will sell? Like, and you know, if I pursue a, a, an article that I think is very important and very telling for some war country that I'm reporting in, and it's a passion project of mine, but I can't sell it, then what's the point? So, so there's the, the economics of it can drive a situation in which um, I think journalists can be compelled to write articles that either you know, toe the line with certain popular narratives or become a little sensational. I certainly did that when I was in pre-Civil War Syria. I wrote articles that I just thought at the end of it, like, this is true, but it, like, is this the most newsworthy aspect to be telling Americans? I don't think so, right? But I made money off of it and I got by. And of course, if you're at a, like a, a big news outlet, like let's say you're an employee, um, you're a journalist, then I think you have more leeway, right? Because you have a salary, your life's a little more steady. So, so when stories are assigned to you, there's, it's a back and forth. It goes both ways. On the one hand, you know, your editors in say Washington DC might see some trend happening in the Middle East, like uh, temperatures in Iraq have been steadily rising over the last 10 years. And scientists are warning that, you know, global warming is going to decimate local farming, whatever. And so an editor will call you up and be like, can you look into this and write like a bigger series? And you're like, yeah, sure. Um, so there's the process of it being driven from your editors and telling you what to write or what to explore. But on the other hand, too, because you're out in the re region, you know more about it. Say you're in the Middle East, you, you're there on the ground and you know the ins and outs more and you can cobble together stories that are um, based on your expertise and intuition and the stories that kind of speak to broader trends that most people back in the U S aren't aware of. So I don't know if that explains it well, but it kind of goes both yeah. ways. Yeah. So maybe if I understand correctly, you're saying, well, if you're, if you're an employee, sort of how they used to do the foreign press corps, where you're an employee of a large journalist organization or a newspaper or media outlet, then you have a little more leeway and you might do kind of deeper dives or, or maybe even more pertinent stories that may not 
be as sexy or get the number of clicks. But when you're sort of in this freelance gig type arrangement, you might pitch stories that you think will just get more clicks, which may be sensationalized or maybe a topic that isn't super pertinent to the local population, but you think that will just get sort of swept up and maybe like a pre-election narrative or something, for, for instance, is that, is that sort of what you were seeing as you, as you were a journalist on the ground there? Yeah. I mean, uh, I think that's basically, that's, that's a good description of it. Um, and I think even at the, you know, the, the, the news business has, has, has changed so much and, and the importance of uh, the viral news cycle is now so, you know, important uh, in terms of keeping pace with that the big newspapers um, and, you know, the big news organizations more broadly, you know, they dedicate many more resources to the clickbait, quick hit uh, reporting that, you know, BuzzFeed came to sort of innovate and that we're sort of all kind of sick of now. Right. But we can't get enough of it. We're all like addicted to it. Right. Um, but what's interesting about that is, you know, when I was at the Washington post, you know, I was like a junior correspondent, you know, I wasn't an employee. I was like one of the, on these glorified contracts. We can talk about this later. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I went into hairy places and everything, but a lot of my time was spent, you know, monitoring, not just like say drop, you know, breaking news on the associated press or Reuters, you know, these news wires that kind of churn out like a daily news service of what's going on in the region. You have access to those, but you know, I was kind of monitoring uh, 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 the social media feeds of say some random rebel group that I'd never heard of uh, in Syria. And it was too dangerous to go into Syria. So you're like remote reporting and you're just kind of collating what they say on their Twitter feed or their Facebook feed. And, you know, you kind of collate that into breaking news articles or, you know, if there's like a, a really trendy article, tragically trendy, like a Syrian boy is bombed in Aleppo um, and there's a compelling picture of him that's going viral. And you see that the New York times has just run like a quick blog on it. Your editor will call you and be like, write this up in 20 minutes and you're like, mm. okay. And you're like, all right. And, and so the, the incentives of editors to partake in the rapid production of clickbaity content uh, has overtaken the entire industry, not just freelancers. Uh, um, I should add too that, you know, there, there's a lot of, I would say potential negative consequences that come with that, that I'm sure you know, but, I think for me, you know, using the example of a Syrian boy, I remember everyone was writing a blog about how he, he, he was sitting in the back of an ambulance and he was covered like in soot. He was alive. Yeah, I remember the photo. Terrible yeah, photo. It's terrible. Like the stuff that was going on and, and, you know, you're there just, well, you're not there. You're, you're, you know, seeing YouTube videos or whatever of these horrible bombings. But this little boy's picture uh, appeared and it went viral and everyone was writing blogs about it. And I remember my editor just like write a blog on this real quick, you know, 500 words, crank it out, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. I'm like, okay. And you know, the journalist in me, so obviously I'm horribly sympathetic to this young boy, right? Like, I'm just like, Oh, my heart goes out to him. But the journalist in me is like, well, how can I, I haven't seen this with my own eyes. Mm -hmm. You know, how can I prove that this isn't some stunt 
maybe they put bags of flour over him to, you know, some rebel group just to make, you know, some sort of viral uh, uh, exposure or something to their cause and manufactured this, right? I don't think that happened, but when you're not there to see it and when the pace of the news is so fast that you have an hour to write something that you can't see with your own eyes, then essentially not only are you churning out information that, that you really haven't verified, uh, but you're feeding the viral horde, right? Mm-hmm. You're feeding the viral flow of information and, and it's just all one echo chamber, you know, kind of feeding off of itself. Kind sure. of like, you know, I hate to get all political here, but I, I feel like the Russiagate reporting was kind of like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like somebody, somebody, you know, would come up with some scoop about the Steele dossier or something, and then everyone else would report on it, and then there'd be all these like analyses and whatever, you know, news outlet, the Daily Beast or the Times or whatever, and then like a month later, the initial story that drove that uh, clickbait sort of viral paced scoop. They're like, Oh, sorry, that actually turned out not to be true. We have to walk that back. And then everything that you've read, there's this whole scaffolding of bullshit, right? Matt Taibbi writes a lot about this, but anyways, so we can talk about that more later. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very interesting. And you see it a lot on social media too. Like everyone wants to be the first to scoop something. And then, you know, inevitably you have stuff, not getting verified properly or being broke when it didn't actually happen and things. And then everyone has to, you know, say, Oh, well, we retract that, but nobody gives a shit about the retraction. They, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's gone by then it's all done by then. And the damage is done. Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing how these narratives just like they shape like consciously and perhaps unconsciously, they shape how people think whether I think they know it or not. Like I have friends who are very smart people who are, uh, you know, highly successful, um, traveled around the world and, and, you know, did well in the SAT and everything. And they are convinced that Vladimir Putin like controls Donald Trump, right? They are convinced of, of that, that the Russians are like going to manipulate this election in a way that just, you know, it's almost as if like, you know, it's, you know, some, some grand scheme beyond human comprehension and, and, and I think, I think it's because these narratives, even if they're built on the scaffolding of bullshit, become so powerful and so entrenched that, um, you know, we can't, lots of people can't even, I don't want to sound conspiratorial here when I say this, but I think lots of people have a hard time identifying uh, that they have been sort of, you know, sucked in and gaslighted by them, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think everyone everyone's quick to point out the conspiracy theories that happen on the other side. But when it comes to being critical of your own sort of point of view, the 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 twenty four hour news cycle and the social media machine sort of encourage people to live in this echo chamber now, where they're subject to their own personal worldview that's just amplified and resonated over and over. And so everyone else is the enemy were the saviors and uh, you know it's 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 very strange to see that there's no even really place for objective news anymore because every news organization has a political bend to it now your twitter feed actually i could see i could see that that sentiment expressed uh you know a lot in your twitter feed like you know when uh the the protests were mm-hmm. kind of 
happening. And, you know, two weeks after George Floyd was murdered, um, you know, suddenly we saw uh, infection rates spike in places like San Francisco, where there were big protests in other big cities, right? But then, you know, suddenly we were just told by health professionals that there was no correlation. Right. Um, you it know, reduced the, media the number. <laughs> I know. It's like, what the heck? Everyone can see it, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone can see it. And not only that, they know, like, if you're NBC and you're shaming some anti-lockdown protest of 75 people because they're not wearing a mask, right? Mm-hmm. They're gathering in public. But then on the other hand, you're not reporting how there's 600,000 people marching in L.A., like, mm-hmm screaming in each other's faces, you know, whether you like, whether you support the protests or not, that's not what I'm getting at here. Cause I think there's a very legitimate reasons to protest police violence. And I, sure. but the, if you can't just, you know, be somewhat balanced and point out the fact that, look, whether you support these protests or not, you know, we have to report the fact that the, I shouldn't say the fact, but the likelihood that the infection rates are going to soar because of this. Right. And we yeah. need to take precautions. No, I felt like I was going crazy during that whole thing. I mean, if 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 your point is stay home to reduce the spread of the virus, you can't just say, well, if a big group of people get together and like you said, holding arms, shouting, some of whom are not masked, and then suggest that that had no impact on the spread of the virus. That's just, you're like, you're sending this message that science only applies if it applies to my cause. Um, and that's, that's what I was getting at earlier. I, someone in my Twitter feed recently said, Oh, well, we'll know after the elections, if the true Patriots are victorious. And I was like, well, both sides think they're the true Patriot. And that's what's so frightening about all of this is like, everyone's convinced they're the person that should be in charge of implementing their worldview on everyone else. And it's like, well, no, that's not really how things are supposed to work. And the media and social media is really sort of reinforcing that bad behavior. Totally. And like, and I think you're also hitting at the fact that like the spirit of compromise and debate is just like, it's evaporated, you know, everyone Mm -hmm. hates each other. And it's like, you know, I went through this process uh, when I came, I came, I left the middle East and, in late 2016, I came back to the U.S. and I'd been sort of uh, out. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't really kept up with U.S. politics, and so I came back and I saw this like crazy man, Donald Trump, in office. You know, race baiting, just saying all this just terrifying stuff, right? And I was like, "Holy cow, this guy's a fascist!" And I had family members, and I was like, "You're supporting a fascist? Are you a fascist?" You know, and I started like saying that, you know, the F word all the time, the other F word. Uh, and then, you know, I started kind of reading more and opening my, you know, reading both stuff on the right and the left. And, and I was like, Holy cow, like I've been gaslit. You know what I mean? Like a lot of these people aren't fascists and they have legitimate concerns and, and to call them fascists is just to shut them down. Cause if you are a fascist, then how can you argue with a fascist? You know, you have to put them in jail or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, it under, it undermines the word fascist. It's like in crypto, we see people call everything a scam. It's like, ah, everything's a scam. This coin's a scam. That's a scam. And it's like, (laughs) well, eventually if you call everything a scam, when a real scam comes, it's sort of the boy who cried wolf concept here. Donald Trump, like, what has he done? He like cuts taxes. He's 
deregulating all these industries, right? Like he doesn't want to, you know, he's the most incompetent, inept president we've had in, I don't know how long, since Herbert Hoover maybe. Um, and he doesn't, he doesn't wield power effectively. If anything, he just is kind of doesn't know what to do with it, right? Yeah, I've, I, I, you know, a few of my liberal friends and I have talked about that. It's like when when the election occurred in 2016, I think a lot of people on the left were really terrified, like, oh, you know, he's going to put in place all of these restrictive policies and things. But to your point, he, he's sort of been so inept, he hasn't even really been able to do anything. The only thing he's really done was get um Republican Supreme Court justice through, but that was Mitch McConnell more than him. I think we'll probably get another, well, they'll probably get another one today with Amy Barrett. Um, so, you know, those are really his only political achievements. He hasn't done anything as far as budget reform or, I mean, I suppose the trade war, you could make an argument or like the wall or something, but even those things, it's like, the wall's unfinished, the trade war was never won. And, you know, you look around after four years and you're sort of like, well, what did this guy even do other than sort of rip apart the civil discourse of what, what, what was left of it after 2016? I know, he's such a con man, isn't he? Like the wall <laughs> stuff, right? Like, it's just, it's so, like, you just you just tell this guy's, he's just adept at conning people. Like, that's his shtick, right? Like, um, and you know, there's, there's, you know, for those, you know, this sounds so cliche, but like, I consider myself a man of the left, right? Like, I'm not really a liberal. I'm more of a, a guy who leans left. Right. Um, but you know, it's like the, the Republicans, they always, you know, George Bush and, 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 you know, Reagan, they spoke with this like kind of common man. We're going to, you know, stick it to the elites in Washington um, we'll have the liberals leave you alone, like kind of like foul populism, right? And then they come to power and what do they do? They, they cut taxes for the rich people, right? They enrich their lobbyists and cronies and, and, and on the, you know, the left, uh, uh, you know, you're stuck with like, you know, the centrist stuff and which I'm not a big fan of, but we'll talk about that later. But, you know, these right wing guys, I just feel like Donald Trump, you know, he's used that same shtick that Reagan used that Trump used, but took it to the next level. So like during his election or during his campaign, his first campaign, you know, he was, he was saying stuff that like kind of gelled with like leftists, right? Like taxing corporations more, bringing manufacturing back, you know, get, getting coal jobs, whatever, you know, like, like stuff that's sort of populist, you know, obviously mm -hmm. infused it with like race baiting crap and anti-immigrant crap and whatever. Right. But when he became president, like it was just like, 180, right? He became normie, like Mitch McConnell rode him, right? right. <laughs> Turned him into a normie Republican, right? Cut taxes, deregulate, you know, don't really change much. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a con that Trump is apparently really good at, but it's, it's kind of an old one, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a sad story really. <laughs> um, but well, I think that's what, a lot of people on the right were worried about when he came to power too, is like, Oh, he's saying all this good stuff, but when he gets in office, I don't think any of it's actually going to turn out. And I don't know, I'd probably make the argument they were right for the most part, but you know, we'll, we'll see. I, do you, do you have a sense for where we're going um, here in the, in the next week or so? What do you think? First of all, what do you think? I'm curious. 
you know, everyone's like, well, the polls were so wrong in 2016, but I, they, they got a lot better in 2018. Um, and maybe those were just for congressional elections and people didn't really care as much, but you know, my sense is that the polling this time around is better than it was in 16. It may not be perfect. And there are probably people trying to play it, but, and, and the spreads are so dramatic on most of these polls. So I, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't want to eat my words too bad and I've already made my predictions, but my prediction is that, um, you know, Donald Trump loses in sort of dramatic fashion, but you know, we'll see. I, I was wrong in 16 about this as well. So I'm just not yeah. sure. Did you see that thing with that? Who's that pollster? Doesn't it Trafalgar or something? Oh, right. He's yeah. like, yeah, he's saying that Trump's going to win again. I'm like, oh my God. You know, <laughs> like what's going on here? Um, so yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't know what to believe, you know, it's just, I mean, I suspect that, that Biden will win, but who knows? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, um, going back to this kind of media stuff. So what do you think? I mean, you've been in the media a long time. Um, you have all of this experience overseas. Like, what do you think is causing all of this? Is it just the sort of buzzfeedification slash um, social media stuff? Or do you think there's something deeper here that's leading to all of this conflict amongst everyone? You know, that's a great question. And I hear a lot of people like just like blaming the woke people, right? Oh, the woke people have taken over our media institutions, you know, the, the control of the New York Times and whatever, right? Like, I, you know, in a sense, I guess you could make that argument. I don't know. I mean, the younger journalists, ideolog- you know, they don't view free speech like, you know, the elder millennial that I am and the gen X people uh, and above, like they're different. Right. We can talk about that later, but I think at the core of it, like you can't really blame the journalists because as Matt Taibbi kind of notes in hate Inc, that book that he wrote about this issue and which kind of, you know, cap, you know, articulates what I was thinking about the media for a long time uh, is that the business model, particularly over the last 15 years, has just been disrupted and transformed so dramatically that this is sort of the natural consequence of, of that disruption. Um, and so we're living that, that, that in this new ecosystem as a result. I've used a lot of exchanges over the years, and they all seem to have their problems from a lack of volume to bad buggy UI or the exchange crashing when Bitcoin makes a big move. Until now, that is. Femex is a new derivatives and spot exchange launched last November by a group of former Morgan Stanley execs. Femex sports lightning fast transactions, the ability to handle many transactions at once so you don't need to worry about it crashing during big moves, deep order books and real verified volume. They have several different trading pairs and leverage options. They also have low trading fees and a killer ref plan. Be sure to use this URL for my welcome bonus. Femex, P-H-E-M-E-X dot com slash A slash bully. Again, Femex dot com slash A slash bully. Check it out. Yeah, no, I I think that seems right um, without knowing as much as you know about it. I mean, I saw the Barry Weiss New York Times resignation letter and that sort of seemed like it sealed the deal a little bit on, you know, trying to bring other voices into media organizations that lean a 
predominantly a particular way. Like it seems like the battle lines have been drawn so, so harshly now that there's no real ability for um, dissenting voices within these organizations anymore. Is that your take on it? Totally. Like, uh, you know, Barry Weiss, you know, she and I see the Israeli-Palestinian conflict very differently. You know, like we're, we're, you know, but I, I agree with a lot of what she writes about this trend, you know, and I have to say, I think she's right. What's funny is that she and Glenn Greenwald agree with each other too, even though they've been sort of mortal enemies on Twitter for many years. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. I'm like on, on a broader systemic level, I think what we're experiencing, again, to, to bring up Taibbi's argument, it's, it's something that I think he's totally right, is that during like the Cold War, before the internet, you had this weird situation where on the one hand, you know, media outlets were, you know, they were the medium of information flow, like they were how people consumed information. So they had this sort of monopoly on information and they could monetize it. And in addition to that, because they had such control, um, the, strategy for maximizing, maximizing the number of viewers and the number of subscribers was this idea of sort of like manufactured objectivity. You know, the objectivity is, I mean, there is objectivity, but it, it's flexible, I would say. But during the Cold War, I think there was this era, it was this era where like both the right and the left kind of agreed like, hey, you know, we're capitalists, but we, you know, we can't, you know, let our, you know, economy be eroded so much that there's like a socialist revolt. So we'll just kind of have this sort of middle ground. So anyways, there was this sort of situation in, in, in during those times when the media outlets, I think, try to be, try to sound as neutral as possible in order to capture the widest possible audience, whether you're on the right or the left, right? So that was, I don't know if this is making sense, but um, uh, that was the business model, right? But then, you know, the Cold War ends, the internet explodes, and suddenly you have a situation where um, not only is information just super difficult to monetize, not only is it super cheap, uh, but you have now this vast space for uh, dissenting voices to build their own websites or whatever and say stuff that maybe in the old days there wouldn't have been an avenue or a, a forum for them to say things. So the, the bounds or the spectrum of objectivity, I guess you could say it's widened dramatically. Uh, but as a result, the ability to monetize your information has become so much harder, right? So what happens is news outlets are now going down the Fox News outlet, right? So the, the, the Fox News model, which is, okay, like we're having a hard time getting viewers. Like, you know, it's only just kind of old boomers who watch TV and we need a way to kind of, you know, we need to find a new model in order to get information. So what do we do? We go hyper-partisan, we go hyper-hysterical and we carve out a niche that, that is, is sort of in tune with that audience. So lo and behold, right? Roger Ailes and these guys like, crafted like this really successful, if not sinister model that Fox News implemented. But now you're starting to see, particularly after 2016, MSNBC, CNN, and even the big newspapers going down this route. Um, there's more to it too. Uh, do, do you want to go on with that? 
Sure. Yeah. I, I find this whole situation really interesting, sort of how we got here. So yeah, if you, if you don't mind continuing, I, I find this thought or sort of this tangent really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and so like the TV people are the most, I think right now the most affected by this, because if you look, for instance, at like NBC, I think, you know, the reason why you see less and less reporting and more and more talking heads and panels and like, you know, millionaire journalists is because it's cheaper to do that than it is to deploy correspondents and reporters around the country and the world, right? So you have uh, that combined with the fact that it's really expensive to run a 24-hour news cycle. So you have these massive media conglomerates coming in. And for instance, I think NBC's news operation, like it's journalists, a lot, a lot of it uh, is funded by, or at least was funded by the revenue from like universal theme parks, right? Because actual reporting operation, uh, I don't know how profitable it is, which is really weird too, given that like you know, some of these anchors make like $5 million a year, right? And it's like, wow, you know, can that money, you know, can you ask for 600,000 and, you know, employ seven other journals? Um, but uh, yeah, so there's that angle. But then I think what's also very interesting too, um, if you get into the ad revenue model for newspapers, uh, uh, and, and, you know, this spits into the same trend of the business model being disrupted. But, you know, in the old days, newspapers were like Goliaths of, of, of sucking in money through ads, right? So you had the typical ads that corporations or whatever would print in the pages of, you know, the you know, Rocky Mountain National News or whatever, Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post or the New York Times or whatever. Then you had like the classifieds, right? Like, hey, you're selling a good car, you know, sure. why don't you buy this? Uh, and then you had subscriptions, right? Um, but it was, there's this triad of money flowing to newspapers and, and because they were the, there wasn't the internet, so they were the sort of medium for the exchange of this information. They made so much money and that's why they could finance, you know, huge teams of reporters in mid-level cities like Denver or something, but also, you know, the, you know, Dallas morning news had foreign bureaus, like I think in Jerusalem and Mexico city, and they could, you know, finance houses for correspondence and stuff, which is wild. That I never saw that. That it's a different era, right? Sure. Um, you know, I slept on floors and stuff, right? It was, it was grody. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So what happened obviously, as you know, is that like Facebook and Google in particular, you know, kind of became these, I guess what Matt Stoller, you know, the author of Goliath really argues is it's sort of an ad monopoly where newspapers are now so dependent on uh, the ad revenue system that those two tech giants in particular control. But then you also had um, uh, 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 like Craigslist <laughs> coming in and taking out all the classifieds. So it's like, hey, I got to box of you know hammers and porno or whatever like you want to buy it and um so like so there are those two two of the three prongs say now for most newspapers particularly the the post and, and the times uh have been taken out mm -hmm. in the in sense right so now all you have is subscriptions right uh, uh well not all but like the i think the bulk of the the explosion of revenue uh that they've experienced uh, is, is, is coming from subscriptions and obviously terror of Donald Trump. But um, yeah, so what happens is, okay, so now suddenly you're 
a global newspaper, you have an internet presence, and you're reliant on subscriptions, right? That's all great because now, you know, if you're, you're, you're flush with cash and everything, but it also shows, I think, a vulnerability that, you know, in turn, you know, creates it, it engenders this, this, this system of partisanship, you know, where if you are following that, you know, a toned down version of that Fox News model, then you can capture liberal readers all around the world, right? And get them to buy subscriptions. But the moment you run Tom, Tom Cotton's op-ed, mm-hmm. suddenly all these liberal people are like calling in and be like, I'm canceling my subscription um, because you're, you know, publishing a fascist or something, mm-hmm. right? And you get 10,000 people doing that. Suddenly, you know, management calls the editors of the Times and says, no, don't run that shit again. Mm-hmm. So the result is you see the opinion page. This is kind of what Barry Weiss is talking about. You see the opinion page turn into this just like bland sort of churning out of, oh, Trump is bad. Oh, you know, uh, protests mostly peaceful. And then you have kind of a subversive op-ed, say, from Ross Tat. And what you don't have is um, uh, a reporting, for instance, on the riot aspect of these pro- protests, right? Everyone on social media, this is an example of how partisanship uh, is sort of a result of the, the changed business model. But everyone on social media, you, me, we saw it. Like the riot aspects of these protests were pretty damn big. You know, I think Axios had just a small report saying that the insurance claims for damaged businesses during, you know, after the George Floyd protests, you know, during the riots and after, it was something like $2 billion, which would make them the biggest protest, the violent protest or violent riots in US history. Mm-hmm. That's a big story, right? Um, but like where were these legacy media outlets covering this, right? Like who were the people burning these buildings? Many of which were in immigrant and minority areas of town, right? Who is, what what ideology is driving these people to go and like burn some, some, some black man's butcher shop, right. In, you know, Fort Wayne, Indiana, you know, who are these people? So my thought is, is if this were shown to be a, a right-wing cause, right? Let's say the, I guess the Boogaloo boys or whatever were doing this. Man, sure. we would have endless takes from all the big papers and outlets about how fascism is taking over, right? Mm-hmm. But instead, we're left with all these questions. Everyone can see that there's this bizarre radical turn, you know, on a, on a segment of the left that's caused all these weirdo riots, like the chop stuff in Seattle mm-hmm. and, and Portland. But we're not getting the media coverage to explain what this actually is, because I think, you know, because of that, that, that change in the business model, I think has made editors and managers reluctant to go full force on it. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's sort of my take. Yeah, no, that that's a really great take in a way I haven't really thought about it. Sort of just this, I guess editors learn like everyone else, right? So if they keep getting calls from their bosses being like, hey, we're getting more and more pressure not to run articles like this or op-eds like that. Um, You know, over time that has an effect on the sort of overall, I guess, narrative out output by the paper when you know when you sort of think about it in the old days a paper was like well here are the facts and i mean of course there's idea ideology imbued in everything but for the most part it seems like the traditional media outlets of old would 
just more report facts as they saw them and maybe some analysis and the opinion pages. But now it's like even the facts are subject to this editorializing process um, that just pushes the media outlet one way or another based on its subscribers ideology, um, which is a really interesting concept. Yeah. I mean, like when the revenue streams are not as diverse as they were before and they're more reliant on people who are, who are readers who have strong ideological inclinations and that's your, if you're dependent on those people and you stray from that particular ideological inclination, then you lose money. Right. Mm -hmm. But I just think it's also kind of scary too. like, again, Taibi talks about this. I see it, but you know, the, the rapidity of, of claims and news stories that are later debunked uh, combined with sort of the hysteria, obviously everyone knows Rachel Maddow or whatever, not to, you know, be too critical, you know, she's works within a system and I'm sure I would, if I were a presenter, I'd be the same way. Um, Cause that's where the money comes in, but it creates this sort of hysteria where, you know, you report on all this Russia stuff and you've, you know, as we talked about suddenly the bulk of it, the foundational document of it the dossier is all crap and nothing works but you don't have a situation where these news outlets then come forward and say hold up here's a big you know page one spread or uh, an hour-long monologue by Rachel Maddow about how we got this wrong why we got this wrong and and what it means that we got this wrong and we're sorry right that never happens so what happens is you know most people I would say, you know, although Matt Taibbi, for instance, we just talk about him, but, uh, you know, Glenn Greenwald and Aaron Maté, who, who writes on the Russiagate stuff, you know, even though they write articles kind of showing how it's, this, again, this scaffolding of BS, most people don't see that. And not everyone's as online as you and I are, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, the scaffolding still stands, even though people have, you know, adequately poked such devastating holes in the narrative that it just sort of collapses but the the system is not designed to, to auto correct it's mm-hmm. designed to inflame which i think is why Divey for instance is called a hate ink you know so yeah. what do you what do you make of uh, so i mean i've i've heard this comparison made and i'll i'll be interested to get your thoughts on it so obviously like the the left has its russiagate stuff that we've talked about now the right seems to be developing this like hunter biden laptop stuff it seems like a lot of media organizations won't touch it um and i'm curious to hear your take if it's because of a the discussion we were talking about before where where newspapers like the post and things don't want to basically publish stuff that might be bad for their guy or b do you think it's more like well they learn their lesson from russia and they don't want to they don't want to put their stamp of approval on something that looks at first glance to potentially be unverifiable or unreliable. I'm, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on kind of the, the Hunter Biden stuff. So I'm, you know, somewhat familiar with it. Um, but I guess my thought is, is a Hunter Biden appears to, you know, he's, I don't think he knows anything about Ukraine and he was what, making $50,000 a month on the board of some rando Ukrainian energy company while his dad was vice president, right? It seems kind of fishy. And probably if we're going to scrutinize Jared Kushner rightfully for, you know, uh, leeching off the Trump presidency through his connections, then we should probably 
do a little bit uh, when, it, you know, when it comes to the possible forthcoming president of the United States, right? But, you know, when I think about, un, you know, documents that haven't been fully verified or kind of went through a process where, like, you know, the CIA or the FBI, for instance, the Pentagon Papers or the Snowden documents or whatever, like people just ran with those, right? Because I think they knew deep down that there was a foundation of veracity to that information that gave them enough confidence to run the story because they knew it was in the public's interest. And so when I think about Hunter Biden, like he's in a sense, you know, forget the crack and the sex and all that. That's his, that's his personal life. I don't give a shit about that, you know, like, but the fact that, you know, he's trying to, you know, basically use his influence to cozy up to, uh, 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 you know, lucrative contracts and, and gov- you know, uh, businesses with foreign governments. That's in my interest. And those emails, you know, haven't been like the Biden team hasn't denied their veracity. Right. So the fact mm-hmm. that news outlets, I can't, I think it was NPR, a couple others are just saying, you know, we don't, I, there's something to the effect that we don't publish, uh, and report on unverified stuff. It's like, yeah, right, pal. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. give me a break. Um, and so, and then again, I think this is also, you know, this is a, an indicative of the business model changing and also the fact that, you know, the, 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 the number of sustainable media, like the, the, the ecosystem has become so much more concentrated because so many more newspapers have, have died and, they're all, all the information's being like published, you know, channeled through Twitter and Facebook that it's kind of scary when you think about it, because on the one hand, not only can, you know, media outlets not publish this stuff, but the ones that do, if you Google it in say, you know, in Google and, and your search results come up, Google can manufacture its algorithm. So if you really do want to read a news story about Hunter Biden, you can't, or at least it's on, you know, link number 37 or something, right? Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, that's like, that gets to the level of like creepy 1984 stuff. I mean, I understand like having journalistic integrity and not publishing shit that like hasn't been verified, but on the other hand, yeah, just completely like scrubbing its existence (laughs) Um, because it's October before the election and it could hurt your guy. It's like, ugh. and I, I mean, I don't know what to think of it. I see people on both sides on my feed. I try to follow kind of, a mix of right and left. And it, it seems like, you know, people are in vigorous disagreement about the authenticity of this stuff. So it's bizarre to think that there's a world where, you know, I guess large corporations are in charge of deciding what it is we view. Um, And maybe that's just the way it's always been. And I'm naive, but it does think, I do think that it's gotten more pronounced recently. I mean, you saw Twitter come out and like basically block anyone posting that link to the New York um, posts uh, link of it. And it's, it's just a strange new world. It feels like on the, on the media censorship side of things. Totally. Twitter is like, I tried to retweet, uh, Shadi Hamid's article on the fascism issue and Twitter warned me. It's like, you got to read the article first because headlines don't, I'd already read the article earlier in the day and I was like, leave me alone Twitter. And then I went to like retweet it and it like, I could only quote tweet it. So I was like, okay. And then this morning there was an article sort of somewhat 
critical of, of, of Biden in the New York Times about how, you know, his the bulk of his money comes from big rich people and stuff for his campaign financing, um, his fundraising. And it was tweeted by Sagar and Jetty, who's like the host of Rising, which is a really cool TV show. He and Crystal Ball on, on I think it's through the hill. Uh, they, they, you know, kind of a younger sort of news team and they present, I think, stuff in a way that I really find intriguing, et cetera. So he tweeted this article out. I went to tweet it and I couldn't retweet it. And I was like, what the heck? What is Twitter doing to me? They're like, they're not exactly silencing me, but they're like crippling my Twitter skills. And I, I'm sure because there's a Biden link and, and, and that you know, contentious article that Shadi wrote, it's like, I'm getting a little suspicious here. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you have like yeah. the shadow banning stuff and uh, well, and you know, as an, as an attorney, I sort of struggle with this because I understand platforms are entitled to make their own editorial choices. But at some point it's like, well, if you're just censoring one side, um, you know, is what you're doing in the public good? Are you some sort of like utility level organization where, you know, maybe you shouldn't, maybe it isn't in the public good that you can just censor whatever topic you want because you don't like it. Um, so there's all of these super complex legal issues intertwined with all of these media and, um, you know, news issues. I think you've got a more nuanced take on this than I do, to be honest, because you know all the legal stuff that I don't. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you see people say that a lot. It's like, well, well, Twitter can do what it wants because it's a private corporation. I mean, it's publicly traded, but it, it's still a corporation. It's not a government entity. The First Amendment only applies to government entities. So, you know, the argument is, well, Twitter can do whatever the heck they want. Google can do whatever the heck they want. But there are some restrictions on that. Um, and I don't think we need to get into that as we have like five minutes left, but um, sure. the point is I think a lot of this stuff is sort of intertwined with one another and gets pretty complex when you start really trying to pick at it. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and the legal stuff is, is almost beyond my capacity for logic. So I defer to you on that. Sure. So I, I have to ask, you mentioned something really early in the call. You said you, you wrote an article that got you kicked out of Syria. What, what was the article about? Uh, do, do you, it's actually a wild story. Can I, can I tell it to yes, you? Yes, please. Okay, great. Yeah. So I was like a pure freelancer, no experience and somehow, you know, sleeping on a dirty mattress on the floor in Syria. This is back in 2007 uh, before the war. Uh, and, you know, it was an authoritarian regime, but, you know, because of the internet and everything, I was able to kind of like freelance from there, which was like unheard of. Right. And lo and behold, you know, the guy who could like string together a few sentences in English, although I was at the time and, you know, perhaps throughout most of my career, not a very good journalist. I just, you know, found myself in these randomly, you know, important places and ended up capitalizing on it, which is at the cap, the struggle of being a journalist. But anyways, you know, I linked up as this, what they call a stringer, for the New York Times, you know, and so I'd send, you know, if there was a breaking news article, I'd interview somebody and send them the quotes, or sometimes they would publish my own articles, you know, it's on spec, you know, it's the, the most fluid arrangement possible, it's very gig. Um, but, you know, I had published an article that ended up being, you know, like a 1500 word expose uh, about the Assad government uh, try not to bore you. Okay, I'll give you the abridged version here. The Assad <laughs> government, uh, you know, allying with the former regime cronies uh, uh, of, of 
of Saddam Hussein's government, who at the time were sort of involved in the the insurrection against American forces who were then sort of in Iraq, right? And they had this meeting in Baghdad, these, these, these Iraqi guys, right? And that's important because the Syrians and the Iraqis are both Ba'athists, but they, for the longest time, they hated each other. So like uh, Bashar al-Assad's father, Hafez al-Assad, actually supported the first Gulf War against Iraq, right? Like, it just goes to show you how crazy convoluted the politics are. So I wrote this story just talking about how Assad, who, you know, his regime is just a master manipulator of, of regional events to, you know, try and capitalize on, on, on events to his, you know, benefit. And so I was like, oh, this is a really interesting meeting. And I think it hints at the fact that Bashar is trying to screw with the Americans in Iraq by supporting his old foes in Iraq, you know, and I wrote the story and a week later, I, sorry, I'll make this more interesting. A week later, the Syrian government announced that it would take journalists to Eastern Syria to show that the location of a, this is a different topic, the location of alleged, of an alleged Israeli attack on an alleged Syrian nuclear weapon or nuclear production facility for nuclear weapons that didn't take place. So what had happened is that, you know, the Israelis in 2007 came in, went under the radar and bombed this facility near a town called Deir Zor, or at least north of it, which is in the far east of Syria. And years later, we realized that it was, I think, a North Korea-supported nuclear uh, production facility, right? At the time, everyone was like, what the hell is going on here? And then this Israeli journalist a few weeks later comes in to Syria um, and on a European passport, which is a big no-no, obviously, and he takes pictures of this like institute in, near Deir Zor. It's an agricultural institute um, saying that this you know, might have been the location of the bombing. And he published it on an Israeli news site. And if, you know, when that happened, the Syrians just freaked out. They're like, oh, my God. Like, you know, the Zionists came in and you know, took pictures. Right. And like, yeah. so anyways, um, uh, uh, after that, you know, they, the government put out that statement saying we invite anyone, we'll escort journalists to this area to see that show you that there's no nuclear weapons facility there. And so I was like, I'll go. <laughs> sure. Um, and so, you know, long story short, uh, this, this is actually a good story. So I'll, I'll try and make it more dramatic, but the, you know, at like 8 AM on, I don't know, like a Sunday or something, this like jalopy Mitsubishi minibus like pulls up and it's the ministry of interior and, uh, a scientist at the Agricultural Institute picked me up in Damascus. And sitting in the back, you're like these three guys who didn't speak English and brown jackets. And I was like, who are those guys? So they're going to drive me to Derizor, which is like a five-hour drive or six-hour drive. And so we're going and, you know, I ask the guys in the back, like, what they do. And they're like, oh, we're graphic designers at the Institute, you know, all of them. And I was like, all right, these guys are agents or something. Mm-hmm. So they take me, you know, on the way to Derizor, they stop and give me a tour of Palmyra, which is like that wonderful archaeological site. Sure. Um, and it was like very, you know, if they were uh, regime people, they were very, you know, spies. They were very cordial and nice. <laughs> um, and then they took me to the, you know, to the facility, the, to the agricultural facility where I showed up and it was like a state visit, right? Like I, you know, that nothing was bombed and all these people came out very kind, very kind. Uh, they came out in white, you know, like lab coats and 
they all had dates and and they came up and they greeted me like I was a visiting foreign minister. I was like, hey, um, and they sat me down and, you know, and for an interview and I asked the head of the, you know, the head of the institute, I was like, oh, was there a bombing here by, uh, uh, by perhaps the Israelis? And he's like, we didn't hear any bombings. There were no bombings here. And I was like, oh, okay. And like, he was all scared and stuff. Cause you could tell he was probably under a lot of pressure not to say the wrong thing when you're in a dictatorship that becomes an issue. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay. So we left and we went to Derazor and walked out and I asked these kids in the, in the street. I was like, Hey, did you guys hear any loud noises a couple months back? They're like, yeah, these two big jets flew over. It was fucking <laughs> terrifying. You know, and I was like, oh, all right. Okay. But anyways, they took me back. This is where the story gets, comes to its conclusion. It's very funny. Uh, they, I'm on the way back on the bus and the like head of foreign journalists in Syria, like the guy at the ministry of information who monitored foreign journalists, his name is Munir Ali. Uh, you know, he called me up and while I was on the bus and he's like, is this Hugh Naylor? And I was like, yeah. He's like, you need to come to my office at 9am tomorrow, like immediately. And I was like, oh, okay. And I got really scared. And so the next morning, you know, I'm back from Dares where I go into his office he shows up 20 minutes late. He's usually a very cordial man, you know, like wears a suit, very dapper, you know, gives you tea. He just came in and was like, you, did you find any nuclear weapons? And I was just like, how did you know about that? <laughs> so I was like, uh, no, thanks. It was a nice, nice drive. And he took me into the office. And then that original article that I told you about that was published in the Times about the, the Iraqi Baathists going mm-hmm. to a meeting in Syria, he pulled it up. And he's, you know, critiquing the article. He's like, every intelligence agency called me up when this article was published and they were asking who you were, you know, because I had gone into Syria on tourist visa, like everyone else did. And I wrote as a journalist, um, you need to be very careful doing that. So anyways, I was, you know, telling him, yes, yes. But I tried to get the government's point of view. He, you know, he clearly didn't read it, made it his accusations. And he's like, you know, I think it would be better if you left Syria. And I was like, you know, can you guarantee my safety here? He's like, you can stay, maybe study Arabic, but if you report as a journalist, you're, and I was like, okay. So I went to my apartment, packed all my bags, and I spoke to a couple of people. And I was like, I'm getting the F out of here. Yeah. And I left <laughs> and that was it. Sorry, that's a long story. No, no, that's great. I figured there was more to it. So I'm, I'm happy I asked. That's a, it sounds like quite an interesting story. Mm. Yeah, wild times. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I think we're over here, but um, I guess my last question is, I know you've, I guess, followed me and now I'm in this crypto space and a lot of the guests and things I have are in crypto. Do you have any cryptocurrency? Do you have any experience with it? Yeah, you know, I own Bitcoin um, and I used to own Monero, but then I (laughs) found that because I like, you know, I like the like pure privacy aspect of Monero, but mm-hmm. I find it's like, it's, I couldn't find a use for it. Whereas, you know, I think Bitcoin, for reasons that you know very well, because you're an expert on this stuff, but I think, you know, given what the Fed is doing with its monetary expansionary policy and the instability and in all these markets, like inevitably inflation is going to hit us, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think it's inevitable. And I mean, we may already be experiencing it. And I think Bitcoin is a great hedge against that. It's like demonstrated its value. And I told my dad, you know, I, th- I got him to buy some grayscale. Nice. Uh, so yeah, I'm a big fan, you know, and, and I think, I think, you know, uh, other currencies will be coming forward in the future that will also provide perhaps other functions that Bitcoin does. And of course, you know more about this stuff than I do, but I, I think sure. it's, I'm excited about the space. 
Cool. Well, as long as you own Bitcoin and you've uh, shilled your dad into it, I think I think my listeners will be more than satisfied there. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, Hugh, I appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, it, do you uh, do you have a Twitter account? What's your Twitter handle in case people want to follow you? Oh, let me just double check. It's uh, <laughs> um, it's at Hugh Naylor. H U G H N A Y L O R. One word. All right. We'll follow Hugh. Um, keep an eye out for his book when it comes out. And yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for the conversation, Hugh. I think this was a, a, a great conversation and hopefully people will like it. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Eastern. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at BullyESQ to continue the conversation. See you next week.